0: Morning, Lighthouse Community Church. I miss you guys so much. And this is one of those Sundays where I really wish that we could be together. I really wish we could hug one another because it feels right now like our world is on fire, or at least our country. And my heart's grieving. I would imagine yours is as well. And so I want to begin by just inviting the Holy Spirit to be here. We desperately need him now as much as we've ever needed him. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and be with us. Would you be our comforter in a time where it feels like there is so much to grieve? Would you be our counselor and give us wisdom to know how to proceed? I ask for that right now as I have things that I've planned to bring, but at the end of the day, I just want to hold them loosely. And we want wisdom to know how to speak, when to speak, when to remain silent, when to just listen. Would you give us the ears to hear what you have to say to us today? Would you give us hearts that are pliable so that you can ultimately guide us to be your representatives? We give you this time, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So we are jumping back into Acts today. And we we actually took a break from it for about two months. Right out of Easter, we were planning to dive back into it. And yet we never anticipated that what was going to happen was going to happen for as long as it was going to happen. I know that many of us said it was hard not to meet initially, but then weeks became months and those months gave way to more months. And now we're looking at something like 10 or 11 weeks that we haven't been able to gather together and we're going, how long, oh Lord, does it have to be? And on top of that, we've got all of the stuff that's going on in our world. And we've even got churches who are saying, it doesn't matter what our governor says or what other people say, we are going to meet because we need it. This is essential. And we know how essential it is to be in community. We know how essential our faith is, especially in times like this, where it feels like our world is going crazy and people are hurting left and right. And we are hurting as we try to navigate it. And so there were some who were saying, hey, it's Pentecost Sunday coming up. And this just happens to be Pentecost Sunday. And for the last month, month and a half, there have been churches pointing to this day and saying on Pentecost Sunday, regardless of what happens, we want to meet. And I'll be honest with you until they started crying Pentecost Sunday and making that the rally cry, I had no idea it was going to be Pentecost Sunday this Sunday. I don't even know what month it is at this point. So the fact that it would be Pentecost Sunday was lost on me. I would imagine some of you might feel the same way. At this point, it's not just my days that are running together, it's my meals that are running together. I just, it's just kind of like from start to finish. Um, so we don't necessarily always talk that much about Pentecost Sunday, but in the grand scheme of things, Pentecost... When you look at the Christian calendar, when you look at the history of the church, Pentecost ranks up there in importance with Christmas and with Easter because it is a radically important date in the formation of the church. And we're going to talk about that today as we talk about what it means to be the church that is and does what God has created us to do. And in order to do that, we are going to, even though we've been studying through Acts for about six months, and many of you, what, what we start with today may feel in some parts like review. It's going to be very, very fresh and very new in context to what's going on. But I also know that there's a lot of you that are watching from home or perhaps watching with a couple of other uh, families. They're pretty new to Lighthouse Community Church. Maybe you've never actually sat in a church service with us on a Sunday. Maybe this is actually the first time you're hearing me speak. And if that's the case, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. You picked a really important day to be with us. So what we're going to do today is we are launching back into our Acts series. But in order to do that, we're going to go back to the beginning. And we're going to try to understand what it is that God was doing on that first Pentecost some 2,000 years ago. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context. The name Pentecost simply means 50. That's what that word means. And for the Hebrews, even before Jesus showed up on the scene, for the Jewish people, Pentecost was a very important holiday in their calendar. Because it was the 50th day after the Passover, And it was the day that they got together for a huge feast in Jerusalem to celebrate God's provision for the people. It coincided with the wheat harvest. And so it was a time of bringing their first fruits to the temple in Jerusalem and saying, God, thank you so much for providing for us. But on this particular Pentecost, some 2000 years ago, God had a completely new plan. And he was going to reframe this holiday to mean so much more for us. And it continues to have reverberations into today. And so I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now let's stop there because there's a ton of information that is important for context. Context is key. Without context, we can rip portions of the Bible out and use them any which way. So it's important for us to remember who was writing, who he was writing to, and the importance of what he was saying. So the, the writer of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke. And Luke was not one of Jesus's 12 disciples. He was actually a convert to Christianity who traveled around with Paul. He was a Jew who traveled around with Paul on his missionary journey, saw so much of the stuff that he writes about. But this isn't even his first book that he writes. The first book that he writes is the gospel that shares his name, the gospel of Luke. And in that, he describes what Jesus did And he's writing it to a guy named Theophilus, which is probably his sponsor, the one who was sponsoring him on his missionary journeys so that Luke could go and interview all of the eyewitnesses, all of the people who had experienced this firsthand so he can give an account of it because Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, he was trained to do research and we are the beneficiaries of that research. Now Luke says here, Theophilus, what I'm writing to you now, this book of Acts, is actually, uh, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, which means that although Jesus has now gone into heaven, although Jesus is resurrected and has ascended into heaven, the work that he began to do was not complete. And he was now going to commission his disciples, who are now going to be called apostles or sent ones, he was commissioning them to carry on the work that he had begun. And that is what we have in the book of Acts is the story of the the early believers. We'll call it the church. And a church is never about a building. The church has always been about a people. So the people of God who were sent by him to be his witnesses. And so let's keep going now. Verse verse 3. After Jesus suffered on the cross and rose from the dead, he presented himself to these disciples and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. We talked about that earlier at the beginning of our act series. You need to go back to September to take a look at that. But if you're interested, lighthousecommunity.com, go into our archived and you can find out all of the ways that there's evidence for Jesus having risen from the dead. So he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive and he appeared to them over the period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked about what a kingdom is. A kingdom is anywhere where the sovereign king or queen's will is done. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about where God's sovereign will is carried out. And Jesus came to do the will of the Father. In fact, he said, listen, I don't do anything that I want to do. I only do what I see the Father doing. I am carrying out his will. And even on the night when Jesus was arrested to be crucified, You remember, you saying, God, if we can do this any other way that doesn't involve me dying on a cross, please, but not my will, but yours be done. That's what I want is your will to be done. So he taught them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, where God's will is done. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now remember what Jesus was calling his disciples to do, to continue the ministry he had begun, to go and be his witnesses. But ironically, the very first command he gives them, recorded in Acts, is not go, rather it's wait. Wait Until the Holy Spirit comes, the same spirit that empowered Jesus through his earthly ministry, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Wait for that Holy Spirit to come upon you because when he does, when that spirit fills you, you will be a radical agent for change in this world. But without the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to accomplish anything of any lasting importance. All you'll be able to do is make an unholy mess. So wait. And then we read in verse six, the disciples gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Here's what I love about the disciples. They are so consistent in their screw-ups. They are so consistent in the way that they just don't get it. It honestly makes me feel better because if God can use people like them, he can use people like us. They were imperfect and we see their imperfection all throughout scripture. And that is a blessing for those of us who recognize our imperfections. And here, I find it so ironic that after walking with Jesus for three years, in his public ministry, after hearing him teach time and again about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom of God, where God's will is carried out, after watching him walk into Jerusalem, thinking he's going to be a conquering king, watching him be sacrificed on a cross, and then raised from the dead three days later, after sitting with him for 40 days, as he teaches them what the kingdom of God is about, they're still focused on the kingdom of Israel on a geographic, geopolitical power. As if Jesus's point of dying on the cross was to make Israel great again. As if his sole purpose was to throw off the heavy yoke of Rome that was telling them how they could live, where they could go, when they could worship, how they could worship. But that was never his intent, ever. His intent was to bring the kingdom of God breaking into this broken world and to help usher people into the kingdom of God, not into the kingdom of Israel. And so Jesus doesn't Lean into that. He doesn't tell them, oh, this is when it's going to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. He refocuses their attention. He reminds them what they're going to be about. So in verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his authority. Okay? Don't worry about all of those things. You guys are getting fixated on the wrong things. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And when he does... You will be my witnesses, beginning here in Jerusalem, radiating out into the wider region of Judea, to the untouchables out there in Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That is what I'm calling you to do. That is what I am calling you to be. Not to be a people who just waits and fear. Not to be a people who are fixated on a geopolitical power or, or, you know, establishing or reestablishing the nation of Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. No, I want you to be a people who reflect the heart of my father God into this world, just as I have done. When they looked at me, when you looked at me and the way that I lived, it was radically different from how the rest of the world operates, radically different from the values of this world. And I want you to live in the same way, live radical lives. And then and then Jesus ascends into heaven. And the disciples are left looking at one another like, now what? And just, just for just a moment, put yourselves in their sandals. Just try to think what it would be like to be one of his disciples. When he looks at you, God in human flesh looks at you and says, you're going to do what I have been doing. You are going to carry on the ministry that I have been doing. Would you feel overwhelmed? I sure would. I would feel like, what do you mean, Jesus? Like, you're God and human. I'm a fallible human being. How on earth can I possibly do what you've been doing? And so it's no surprise that instead of going out and beginning to share the gospel in Jerusalem, they run back to a room and they hide out. They hide out because they're afraid that what happened to Jesus about a month and a half before namely that they would be arrested and killed on a cross, they're afraid that that same thing will happen to them. And so they hide. They huddle together in a holy huddle and they pray, God, help us figure out what this looks like. Help us to do what you're calling us to do. We're scared. We're overwhelmed. And that's where we find the disciples on that Pentecost Sunday, 2,000 years ago. Go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 2. This is what happened on Pentecost. This is why we celebrate the birth of the church. When the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were all together in one place in a room. May have been the upper room where they had that last meal. We're not sure, but they were all together hiding. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Wind and fire were two ways that the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible often represented itself. And so this is the Holy Spirit that is finally coming upon them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So these disciples who have been praying in fear, who are terrified that they too might be arrested when the Holy Spirit comes, they are radically changed. The Holy Spirit is like a, is, is like a, a, a reagent that causes them to, it, it, it just completely changes them. And I've often likened this to when you drop Mentos into Diet Coke, right? If you, any of you have children, you've probably seen this or done this. When you drop Mentos in Diet Coke, The results are explosive because the Mentos interact on a chemical basis, on a chemical level with the Diet Coke and it, that little container of Coke can no longer hold it and it starts spewing everywhere. And in the same way, when the Holy Spirit falls on this holy huddle of disciples, the results are explosive because that little room that they're in can no longer contain them. And they begin to course out into the streets that are clogged with pilgrims from all over the world, men men and women of different skin colors, men and women who speak different languages, men and women from radically different cultural backgrounds. The one thing that those men and women had in common was that they believed in the God of Israel and they worshiped him as God. So that's why they were there to give thanks for God's provision to celebrate the harvest And as the disciples begin to course out into the streets of Jerusalem, they can't help but allow God to use their tongues to worship him, but they're not worshiping in languages that they have learned. They're not worshiping in Aramaic or even Hebrew or Greek. They are worshiping in the languages they never learned, but that the people that are there in Jerusalem do understand because it was the languages of their homelands. And so they got to hear the praises of God to being declared by fishermen and tax collectors. Men and women who had no ability to speak those languages. They heard the gospel. They heard the word of God being proclaimed to them in their own languages. And they were interested. They leaned in and said, what was going on? Now there were scoffers in the crowd. There were people who just wrote them off, laughed at them like, oh, these people are drunk so much so that Peter had to get up and, and go, hey, listen, we're not drunk. It's only 10 in the morning, right? No, this is, this is the effect of the Holy Spirit on us. We want you to know. And I don't think it's any coincidence that on a day that there were people in Jerusalem to celebrate God's provision, God provided the Holy Spirit that would enable his church, his people to do what he had called them to do. Namely, to be his witnesses beginning there in Jerusalem. I don't think there's any coincidence that on a day where they were, that the Jews were celebrating the harvest, the first fruits of the church were brought in. The first fruits of the harvest from the ends of the earth were brought in. And some 3000 men and women gave their hearts to Jesus Christ that day, chose to join the fledgling church And remember what that church was. It wasn't a building. It was a group of men and women who had given their hearts to God and God had given his spirit to them. And that synthesis of corruptible flesh and divine spirit was a radical reagent and it absolutely affected Jerusalem because we read about what the early church in Jerusalem was like. It was an exciting time to be part of the church. Because the people of Christ lived so radically different. Remember, Jesus said, I haven't come to do my own will. I've come to do the will of the Father. I've come to exemplify His heart. That's what it means to be a witness. Sometimes we think it's just using our words, but more often than not, it's using our bodies, it's our lives, it's the way we live that speaks more powerfully than the words we speak. For Jesus, He showed them what the kingdom of God was like over and above what the kingdom of this world was like because when the kingdom of the world said, if somebody knocks out one of your teeth, you knock out one of their teeth. If somebody kills one of your flock, you kill one of theirs or you take one of theirs to get even. If a Roman centurion forces you to carry his load for a mile, which the Roman centurions were allowed to do, you do that and nothing more. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You carry it an extra mile. You go the extra mile. And when somebody knocks out one of your teeth, when they slap you on the face, you turn the other cheek. When somebody persecutes you, when they speak ill of you, you don't talk back. You don't return fire with fire. You pray for those who persecute you. Jesus lived radically. Because the nation of Israel thought that power was a sword and a conquering king. He showed them that power was a suffering servant who not only washed the feet of those who followed him. But laid down his life for them because greater love has no one than this. That they would lay down their life for a friend. And Jesus modeled the heart of God into a world that had lost it. And thought that it was the rules that were their God. It was their rights that were their God. And that's what they were pursuing. And he said, no, I'm willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of God's will advancing. And now the early church, the believers who are filled with God's spirit, they began to live differently too. And it was radical in their communities because they began to love generously, sacrificially people who had didn't have enough, were taken care of by the people who had more because whoever had a lot would sell the excess that they had and gave it to those who were poor so that everybody was being taken care of. No, they didn't have a building to worship in, but that didn't matter because they gathered wherever they could. Maybe it was the temple courts, or maybe it was the marketplace, or maybe it was somebody's home. And they would break bread together and they would celebrate. Their communion wasn't just a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. Their communion was a meal, a love feast. And they celebrated what God was doing. And when people interacted with the people from the church, they were overwhelmed by the joy that just naturally exuded out of these people. And so the people in Jerusalem took notice of the early church. There was something radically attractive about them. And so people wanted to know more. They they began to to come tiptoe a little closer, trying to figure out what is different about them than the rest of the world. And you know who else noticed? Was the Jewish religious leaders. They took notice because there was something so radically attractive about the way that the early church was living that they were afraid that the church was going to start steering people away from where they had control. And it's into this that Jesus was calling his church to be, they were the beginnings, this beautiful, messy beginnings of the church. But, <laughs> there's always a but, isn't there? And in this instance, it was that the biggest issue, the, the, the biggest impediment that the church had to overcome wasn't from outside the church. It was actually from within their own hearts. Because the biggest impediment to the church doing what Jesus had called the church, his people to do and to be was their own natural propensity to want to gravitate towards people who thought just like them and acted just like them. It was their own desire to be in a safe community of people that thought just like them. And so although the early church was told, start in Jerusalem, but begin to radiate out to the ends of the earth, they had a failure to launch. Instead of going, they stayed and they continued to gather together and just enjoyed the holy huddle. And I get that. I miss our ability to huddle up on Sundays. I think it's imperative that we have time of connection. But a lot of us have been thinking that that holy huddle is what the church is. And that's where we miss it. That's a time to come together and celebrate what God is doing. But it's important that we go because that's when we are the church. That's when we get to be the salt of the earth and the light of the earth that this world desperately needs. And when we start holy huddling, what the heck good is salt that refuses to come out of the salt shaker, right? What's the point of light if it never leaves the light bulb? It's of no use. And God recognized that. And he recognized the propensity in the hearts of his own people to step back and to just gather around people just like them. And so rather than God saying, hey, build that church, get a good building, get some property there in Jerusalem and make the most of it. God began to push his people out and he did so in a way that I think a lot of us would never attribute it to God doing it. He used persecution. He allowed his people to experience deep, painful persecution there in Jerusalem. People were arrested. They were beaten. They were mocked. Some of them were even killed. And when that happened, when the persecution and the pain of staying became so great, the church scattered. I've often used the analogy of a dandelion where all the seeds are stuck together. And in that moment, a dandelion's not of much use. It's not going to propagate other dandelions. But when you blow on it and those seeds scatter, that's when the dandelion does what it was designed to do. And when God used persecution to blow on the early church, they scattered into into Judea, to the untouchables in Samaria, and towards the ends of the earth. And that's when the church began to do what God had called the church to do. Now, I suspect that many of you who are sitting and watching from home can figure out where I'm going with this. Because we find ourselves right now in a time where it's very uncomfortable, right? We long to be together. We long to run back together and be in our holy huddle, surrounded by people who, who know the same songs that we sing and who love us, believe the same things we do. We long to hug one another, and that is important. But I just wonder... I wonder if the ways that we've been looking at Pentecost Sunday and the ways we've been looking at this church and even the ways we've been looking at this current COVID-19 crisis and the ways that we've been looking at what's happening with the uh, you know, the unrest going on in Minneapolis and Los Angeles and all across the United States. I just wonder if perhaps we're looking at this the wrong way. I have some some thoughts I couldn't help but jot down. And these might, these might be hard to hear. They're hard for me to hear. But could it be that we've missed the point of Pentecost? Could it be that we have put our stock in the wrong fixation? Rather than saying Pentecost is all about the church being able to come together and be together in our boxes. Could it be that Pentecost was actually just the opposite about God saying, go and be the church in your city? and in your county, and in your nation, that this world so desperately needs. Could it be that we've completely and totally misunderstood what God wants from his people right now? Not to fight for our right to gather, but to fight for his kingdom to come crashing into the kingdom of this world So that we don't give in to the petty politicking and finger pointing and and putting other people down so that we can somehow feel better about our position. We can't approach these things the same way that the world does because we're no longer of the world. We're no longer our own. We were bought at a price. It's the most painful Highest price ever paid. It was Jesus' body for our bodies. Jesus' life given so that we can live as his ambassadors in a world that is desperately hurting. Could it be that we are focused on the wrong thing? And instead of thinking, how do we get back in the building? How do we stuff ourselves back in the box? What if we were to approach this as, how can we be the church in our city that our city so desperately needs? And that's going to look different for different people. I have absolutely no problem, none whatsoever, with churches around our city and around our county and around our nation who are meeting today. I have been praying for them. I pray for their protection. I pray for their neighbors. I pray for their cities. They are in a different context. They have different perspectives. And so their decisions are their decisions. But for us, I can't help but feel like this is the very season for which God has called us to be the church for our city. And the choices that we make cannot be simply what is best for us. They must be considered what is best for those outside of the church. Those who would never step foot into this place. Because Jesus died for them as well. They are image bearers of God as well. It doesn't matter if they look differently than us. It doesn't matter if they speak a different language than us. It doesn't matter if they believe radically different things than us. They probably do. And Jesus died for them as well. And so the decisions we make, we don't want to make solely for our own benefit. We already believe. We want to make decisions that would remove every last impediment from our neighbors, saying, you know what? Yes, I believe that they're small-minded. Yes, I believe that they're deluded. Yes, I believe that they use Jesus Christ as a crutch, but I can't deny that they love well. I can't deny that they, there's something different about them. And I'm curious. Peter said it this way. Live such good lives amongst the unbelieving world that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see the way you live. They will see the way you love. They will see your good deeds. And ultimately on the day that Jesus comes back, they will call him Lord and Savior. That's why we're here. We're going to have all eternity together. We will now have all eternity to share the gospel, the good news, and to live it out as transformed men and women and citizens of the kingdom of God within the kingdom of America. So I just want to challenge us to reconsider how we look at this current season. You may look at it as the most awful thing that has happened to the church. I actually look at it as one of the most amazing opportunities we have ever had. Because the soil of our nation is being tilled before our eyes and yes, it's painful. And there are people hurting all over the place. And even I am tempted to try to explain it away or to, or to tell people how they should live. Even I am convicted that I need to listen more than I need to speak, that I need to let my life speak more. And I'm convicted that I need to pray. I need to pray for those who are in authority over us, for our mayor, for our city council, as they make decisions that affect all of us. I need to pray for our governor, And our legislature, as they try to make directives that affect all of us, pray for them. Pray for wisdom. I need to pray for our president and our legislature and the people that are speaking into their decisions. Because quite honestly, I don't have a voice to the president or to our governor But I pray that God will guide our nation. And I don't believe that God is all that concerned with our comfort. In fact, I've seen that he uses the discomfort of life. He uses the ways that life doesn't go the way we planned to do the greatest amount of work. Because it's when things are hard that we are forced to grow. When things are easy, that's when we become lazy. That's when we become complacent. That's when we begin to place our hope in things that can easily be shaken. And right now, things are being shaken. So ladies and gentlemen, my brothers and my sisters, my fellow citizens of the kingdom of God, would you please join me in laying down our right to be right, our right to demand our rights, and instead take up the mantle of a citizen of the kingdom of God who are no longer our own. We are ambassadors of hope and restoration in a world that so desperately needs to find hope. And we get to live it out, not just speak it out, live it out. May our lives declare the hope that we have found because it's not just for us. They need it as much, if not more than we do. I just, I just want to pray. I want to close this time as we're about to go into a time of a worship response, I want to pray for our nation and I want to pray for our city and I want to pray for our own hearts and our own witnesses to our spheres of influence, whatever those happen to be. So would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we are your church. We are your witnesses. We have tasted and seen that you are good That you are gracious. That you are the way, the truth, and the life. We're yours. So we invite you to help yourself to our lives. We invite you to guide us. Guide our steps. Whichever way you choose. Even if that means deviating from our carefully planned paths. Even if it costs us. Even if it makes us uncomfortable. Your will, not ours, be done. We invite you to use us to radiate the hope that we have found in you back into our neighborhoods, into our city, into our county, our country, and this world. Help us to reflect your heart. Because there's way too many people who are reflecting their own heart and their own thoughts and their own rights. May they know we are your disciples by the way we love. God, we pray for those who are in authority over us. For those who have to make the hard decisions, we pray for those who are on the front lines right now of these riots. For the men and women who have to stand in the gap, whether they be in uniform or simply are trying to declare this is unjust, but we will not burn and pillage in the process. I pray for all of those who are in the face of danger with that. I pray for our nurses and our doctors and our frontline workers as they face another enemy that is harder to see. I pray, Father, for us who have been so shaped by the culture that we were raised in that we can't even see the ways that we have bought hook, line, and sinker, the thinking of the kingdom of this world. We pray that you would help us to live and to think and to see this world as citizens of your kingdom, and we invite you to help yourself to our lives so that your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth, in Costa Mesa, and in our hearts, just as it is in heaven. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.
1: thirsty. All who are weak, come to the fountain. Dip your heart in the stream of life. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away. In the waves of his mercy As deep cries out to The fountain. Dip your heart in the stream of life. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away in the waves of His mercy as deep cries out to. how great is our God. If you feel like standing in your living room, go ahead. The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps himself And darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice and trembles at his voice. stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end, beginning and the end. And the land.
0: Amen. You know, I know that it probably feels strange to look at something like the COVID-19 or even to look at something like these current, you know, uprisings and, and riots going on around our country as a blessing. But if God, and maybe blessing is too strong. How about an opportunity? Because if God could use persecution to push his church to be what his church was designed to be, then he can use COVID-19. He can use the shutting down, the shuttering of the buildings so that the church will remember what they were created to do and to be. And the church can even use the unrest that's going on all around our country to shake us and wake us up and say, now your your neighbors need you far more now than they ever have before. Our country and our world is hurting. So now go be the church. Reflecting the heart of God. We can only do that with the Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall upon us. I pray that you would fill us up. I pray that you would overcome our fears. We got a lot of them. I pray that you would overcome our questions or answer our questions or at least let us help us lay them down so that we can fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May we live such good lives amongst our neighbors, amongst our city and amongst this world that although they try to write us off, they can't deny that there's something different about us. Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. I love you and I miss you. And I want you to know that although we're not gathering here and many of you are already going to be doing community and having lunch together, if you want, Pastor Jeff and I miss you. And we just felt like today and maybe moving forward, we want to see you. So he and I are going to be hanging out in our parking lot for the next hour and a half. And if you want to swing by and say, hey, what's going on? I miss you. Or if you need prayer, maybe you just need encouragement. Please come and see us. We would love to see you. And if you are not yet in a life group, if you don't have community and you're feeling like, man, right now I need community, would you please write into pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. Let us know and we will help you find a community to plug into in this time. Because although we are called to be the church and to go, we still need one another. I love you and I'll see you soon.